Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, I'm the Chief Executive here. I'm a proud member as well. And it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. He's one of Colorado's US Senators. He's a Democratic Party candidate for President of the United States. He's Michael Bennett. As early as it is, oh yes, yes. Yes. As early as it is, we are already well into the 2020 election cycle, and as you'd expect, your city club will be bringing you forums featuring the candidates, voices, and issues shaping the race and shaping America's future. A few months ago, we hosted a forum in collaboration with the Cuyahoga County Public Library with South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, another candidate for the presidency, and joining us today is, of course, Senator Michael Bennett. Senator Bennett was born in New Delhi, India, where his father was serving as an aide to Chester Bowles, the U.S. Ambassador to India, and he grew up in Washington, D.C., graduated from both Wesleyan University and Yale Law School. In a column earlier this year, Plain Dealer's Brent Larkin noted, during a six-year stint in the private sector, Bennett earned a national reputation for his skill in saving struggling businesses. And in the public sector, Bennett worked in Columbus as an aide to Governor Dick Celeste, who's with us today. Welcome, Governor. He also worked as counsel to the Deputy U.S. Attorney General in the Clinton White House and Chief of Staff to Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper, also a candidate for president. Um, Senator Bennett also worked as the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. He has served in the U.S. Senate since 2009 after being appointed to fill a seat vacated by Ken Salazar, who had been tapped to be President Obama's Secretary of the Interior. Senator Bennett announced his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president on May 2nd, 2019. A month later, his book, The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics, was released. Esteemed guests, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Senator Michael Bennett. Thank you. Well, good, good, good afternoon, everybody. Dan, thank you for that introduction. And as a former school superintendent, I uh, just want to, uh, in front of your mother, recognize the fact that you were once a teacher, which uh, I'm grateful for. I'm sure all of us are. I also want to start, I talked to Sherrod Brown this morning when I got here as a friend, um, and to say how sorry I was about what had happened in Dayton. And I want to start by saying that today, as you know, Colorado has struggled through this for many, many years. Columbine happened. 20 years ago, um, and we'll t I'm sure we'll talk about it tonight, but 20, 20 years ago in, in many ways defined um, my kids' upbringing. So I know how painful this is, and I want you to know that all of us in Colorado stand with all of you. Uh, I have often said in my life, because it's true, that I feel like I have been conferred every privilege that somebody in this democracy could could ever have expected or not expected, um, and, it's, and that is true. Um, 
I can't think of a greater privilege than to have the chance to be here with Richard Celeste, your former governor, my former boss. You should have a round of applause. Because I don't think a person could reasonably expect that in their lifetime they would have the chance to be at the City Club in Cleveland 30 years before, which is the last time I was here as an aide to Richard Celeste, watching him answer the hard questions that I know I'm going to be answering a little while, and then 30 years later have the chance to come back and speak. So I will think of this forever, and I'm Dan, I want to thank you for making it possible. In those days, I wasn't paid very much uh, <laughs> by the governor. He had done me a favor by giving me a job. So dinner here often involved waiting for the popcorn to finish at the Boncourt Hotel bar. <laughs> Uh, and then we go off the next day to do whatever it was we were going to do. On Friday nights, we often had walleye at May Halls uh, in Dick's hometown, so in Lakewood, Ohio. So, all right, enough of that, but I, I, I really am grateful. And uh, I want to share a few remarks because I, I do treasure this place so much. Um, there was a time in America when business fueled by technological revolutions grew into greedy monopolies that put our people, their government, their environment, their health, their economic opportunity at risk. When the gap between the wealthiest and poorest citizens was larger than it had ever been and kept growing, even though it meant that millions lived in poverty, many children in their early lives received substandard health care and education, and many older Americans, almost all older Americans, at the end of their lives, lived on only the security their families could offer. When our borders teemed with millions from other nations less fortunate than ours, looking for safety and opportunity, only to be greeted by nativist fears and hatred. When racism and bigotry tore our national fabric and served as justification for unequal education, housing, and prison sentences. When we plundered our environment, dumping waste into the air water and empty spaces, making our country toxic and unsafe. There was a time in America when our elected officials were content to tolerate these conditions, in part because they could get rich off the influence racket, contaminating every level of government. As familiar as those conditions sound, may sound, today, their moment is not now. It was 140 years ago at the end of what Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner called the Gilded Age. It is important, it is important for today's gener American generation to know that we did not pass without extraordinary effort, patriotism and hard work from that unhappy chapter in our national story to a brighter, better 20th century. As citizens, we challenged those underlying oppressive conditions and established a new progressive era for American democracy and capitalism. As members of unions and emerging professions, as students and professors, as journalists and civil rights leaders, as suffragettes and judges, even as members of clubs like this, we said we had enough and instead put our effort toward reforming our political system and improving the economic prospects of most Americans. We did not wait for somebody at the top 
to get it right. Even as Ida Wells shined a light on lynchings, Jacob Rees told the story of how the other half lives, and Lincoln Steffens exposed the corruption of American city governments. Americans could not and did not wait on the likes of Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland, or Benjamin Harrison to lead the nation to a better place. Of course, as with any era, we should not romanticize this one. Racial segregation, eugenics, anarchism, and federal prohibition belong on the trash heap of our country's worst ideas. Nevertheless, across the country, we establish social movements for women to get the vote, for city and state government to be more effective, for the United States to do what no, no state could do alone, and protect consumers from tainted food and the coercive power of monopolistic trusts. We laid the foundations for our highways, connecting towns to cities, building bridges, and improving thousands of miles of road. We set aside lands for parks in local communities and also as a nation. We created the income tax with the 16th Amendment, direct election of senators with the 17th Amendment, women's suffrage with the 19th Amendment. Congress passed the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Acts, the Federal Trade Commission Act, and the earliest version of the Interstate Commerce and Food and Drug Acts. This was a time when out of a simple but earnest commitment to improvement, we looked beyond our differences to the good we could do together and for each other. There may be no better example of this sentiment, at least for this audience, than the way this club's founders characterized its purpose. A meeting place for men of all shades of opinion, political beliefs, and social relations. To share accurate information on public questions and conduct free open discussion to effectively solve the pressing civic problems of the day. This is a humble, magnanimous promise made by your club's members to the city of Cleveland. It is sad and not a little nostalgic to say this is a long way from our current political discourse. Imagine what President Trump would have tweeted about Ida Wells or the suffragettes, about the muckraking journalists at McClure's and Cosmopolitan. Imagine Mitch McConnell faced with the prospects of a constitutional amendment offering the vote to women or permitting an income tax. Imagine the Freedom Caucus with the first antitrust and food purity act. Today our national exercise in self-government has been immobilized by partisan gerrymandering. A few bad court decisions on campaign finance and the ensuing domination of our political system by self-serving billionaires, the tyranny of the Freedom Caucus, the collapse of daily newspapers, and with it, our shared understanding of the facts, partly in pursuit of which your predecessors formed this club. At the same time, over the last four decades, our country's economic growth has accrued to the top 10% and especially to the top 0.1 percent, 160,000 households that control the same wealth as the bottom 90 percent 
of Americans, 145 million American families. In addition, far from liberating people from their economic circumstances, our education system, as it is in Cleveland and Ohio and across the country, shackles American children to the economic station of their parents. Alone among industrialized nations in the world, our life expectancy is now declining year after year. In the same 40 years, our justice system has distorted itself into a semi-privatized mass incarceration complex. We put a million people, mainly men of color, behind bars and now have as many as 10 times more people behind bars than European nations. And all the while, we degraded our democracy. Rather than using technology to make it easier to cast a ballot, state leaders, usually in states where the legislature is controlled by a single party, like here in Ohio, retreated to back rooms to devise new ways to erase people they don't like from their voting rolls. When the opportunity comes to secure our elections from interference by hostile foreign governments, our Republican leaders in Congress shut down debate before it even starts. It is not surprising that in the United States, voter turnout is lower than in most Western democracies and continues to decline. These are, among others, the conditions of our own gilded age. Confronted by these conditions, Donald Trump boasts, I alone can fix it. The evidence argues forcefully to the contrary. He cut taxes for rich people, worsening our economic chasm and exploding the deficit. He took insurance away from millions of middle-class Americans, including people with pre-existing conditions. He denies climate change in the face of all reasonable science. He abandoned our allies so he can, so he can showboat with dictators, cudgel our international business partners with tariffs, and make trade wars where once there were delicately balanced international markets. Worst of all, he pursued a politics of racial hatred and a harassment the likes of which we have not seen in a century. In so doing, he betrays oath and office and turns his back on government of the people, by the people, and for the people. As Americans, can we really accept these hatreds and fears for one more day? As a nation, can we count on resentment and diminished expectations of one another to make a nation fit for the best hopes we have for our children and our grandchildren? Of course, we can't. I was in Somerton, South Carolina on Tuesday, a rural part of that state. It's a school district where 1,200 of uh, the kids in the school are African American and 12 are white. It's part of the state where there are 16 high schools where not a single student has taken an AP test in years. And I met two women that were there who were in their 70s, or I suppose their 80s, who had, whose families had been plaintiffs in a segregation lawsuit 73 years ago that had been filed on their behalf and the behalf of other children in this community. And they had long left the, the community and then they came back ultimately to, to retire there. 
But they said to me, you know, they remembered that houses were actually burned down of the people that litigated this case. They had to move out of the community. Uh, they won the case as part of Brown versus Board of Education that declared that schools that were segregated were by definition unequal. And what they said to me was the schools are as segregated today as they were 73 years ago. And the lack of opportunity is, is if anything, is worse than it was 73 years ago. When we allow this to happen, equal is not equal. When some people have great health care while others have none, equal is not equal. When the wealthy are given tax breaks and loopholes and working families are simply crushed with more debt, equal is not equal. And it is our responsibility, yours and mine, as it was for the people who founded this club, to bring a long overdue conclusion to this second Gilded Age. Like that one, it will not end by itself, like a history class when the bell rings. The proper close will come only when we draw again upon our courage and join as neighbors, patriots, and Americans. We can ensure that every kid in America has access to high-quality preschool, one of the best ways to close the inequality gap in education. We can provide universal health care to every American through a public option, giving them the choice to buy the plan that is best for their family. We can reform our immigration system to end the barbaric treatment of separating children from their parents at our border. We can, thank you. We can give our families some peace of mind that we're actually capable of making progress by passing universal background checks to help reduce the outbreak of mass shootings in our country. We can build an economy where all Americans share in its prosperity, and we can reform our political system to diminish the influence of money and secure more people a meaningful voice. As we sit here today, all these years after this club was founded, we are the first American generation poised to offer our children and grandchildren less opportunity, not more. We have no right to leave them such a mean inheritance. Our parents and grandparents, the founders of this club, set the standard and rose to the challenges of their day. We must do the same. Thank you for having me today. Today we are enjoying a forum with Michael Bennett, U.S. Senator for Colorado and a Democratic candidate for President of the United States. He's also the author of The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. We're about to begin our Q&A with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are City Club interns Remy Orsanya and Sophia Brewer-Thompson. May we have our first question, please? Thank you. Thank you. Today. Um, my question is, I wonder if there are ways, and if you can identify the ways, being the son of a Holocaust survivor, if there are ways that it affected your, your 
uh, opinions about education or you know justice or law or in what ways yeah. did being the son of a Holocaust survivor affect you? Yeah. Um, in, 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 all, in every respect in my life, I, I would say, um, the, um, my, my mom and her parents, for those of you that don't know, were Polish Jews who survived the Holocaust. Uh, they and an aunt were the only ones that survived. Everybody else was killed. And in fact, my mom, for a time, was separated from her parents during the course of the Holocaust. And I don't mean to create any equivalency here at all between what's happening on the border and, and the Holocaust itself, but the day that the pictures started to sh show up of the kids being separated from their parents at the border, I got a call from my mom at the office. I don't always answer her call at the office, but <laughs> on, on that day I did. And she said, I see myself in these kids. You know, and my mom's not somebody who is given to exaggeration, but that's what she said. I see myself in these kids, and I see her in these kids. And to me, I mean, the idea that we have a president who, in the name of the rest of us, has turned our border into a symbol of nativist hatred and hostility and has separated children from their parents is one of the most egregious things that any president could do. Um, my... Uh, uh, Grandparents and mother suffered through terrible things, and you could always tell that they had, that there had been a, an incredible sense of loss of what had happened to their families. But that in no way compromised their absolute sheer and unadulterated joy of being American. And they, they, they left their, their country after the war was over. They went to Stockholm, Sweden for a year. They went to Mexico City for a year. Uh, and then they finally got here in the only country in the world where they felt they could rebuild their shattered lives. And there was never a question their whole lives that um, they were embraced by the America. They had the strongest, I've been all over the state of Colorado. We have a lot of immigrants in my state. And I've never met one that's got a stronger accent than my grandparents had. <laughs> and I've never met people that were greater patriots than they were because they had suffered, the, this goes to you, they had suffered the worst blow against humanity that anybody had ever suffered. And they found exactly the opposite here. They found a promised land, a place that embraced pluralism and embraced them and made them part of the fabric of this democracy. So those are the ways in which it's affected me and in many, many other ways that are too numerous to mention. You asked about education, too. And let me say, they were educated people. And they knew how important education had been to them to be able to, able to create opportunity out of the ashes that they had struggled through. And in one generation, because America was as kind as America was to them and because they worked hard and kept their benefit of the bargain, they paid for my education and my brother's and my sister's education. And um, now that I've been a school superintendent and done some other things in my life, and I mentioned earlier that I you know, feel like I've been conferred, conferred every privilege you could be in this society, it's why I feel so strongly that every American child deserves, first and foremost, to have a high-quality education so they also can have the benefits of this society. So thank you for that question.
Um, we have a very unusual presidential election this year, as you are, as we're all aware. And um, in light of the uh, disapproval of the current president, I anticipate that we'll have lots of not only Democrats, but also independents and Republicans voting for the Democratic candidate for president. Um, how do you see us uh, coming to an agreement and cutting back on the number of presidential candidates and what will be part of your decision as to whether to stay in the race or leave it? Um, on uh, the um, first question, um, I think you can make no assumption that lots of Democrats, independents, and Republicans will vote against this president. Um, uh, we have to work to make it so. Those of us that believe we need this guy to be a one-term president, which I strongly believe. And, and if, if, I, if, I ha if I had to sum up, which I, well, I will do, because if I had to sum up how he got there to begin with, it would be to say that we were too careless with our democracy. And we cannot let that happen again. He acquired power in a very unusual way for a politician in America. He acquired, in a national politician, he acquired power by dividing Americans against each other. And he is trying to hold on to his power by doing the same thing. And w what our job needs to be is to unify the American people with an agenda that can, that can overcome that division. His base will be motivated. Having our base motivated as Democrats, I'm speaking of myself, not of all of you, is not going to be enough. We're going to have to have independents and Republicans, and we're going to need to make sure that we're speaking to them. The way I'll evaluate my, I, I got into this race because I thought I could win this race. I would not have gotten in. Thank you. I, I, I would not, I would not have gotten in if I hadn't thought I could win it, uh, and I still think I can win it. Uh, and. Uh, if I decide that I can't win it, then I won't stay in it. Um, that's why I decided to run. I will say that in the latest poll, I was seventh in New Hampshire, which is, um, I have to call my mom and tell her, because she was the one who said, when I got in, she said, do we really need 22 people running? <laughs> so I've now made it up to seven, and I'm going to report that to her. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being here. Um, I know that I, as a professional woman who works full-time, stand on the shoulders of women before me um, and being able to do what I do today. But I also, in my professional life, have had to negotiate for maternity leaves that I was not necessarily entitled to by law and work on childcare for all four of my children so I can continue to pursue my professional dreams. So my question for you is, as president, what is your, what will your policy recommendations be to create a national uh, change in the system regarding paid family leave and affordable child care. Thank you. Um, we should have both. Uh, so I am for paid family leave, if, and and I and I'm obviously for affordable child care, which eludes everybody in this country. It's an amazing fact that um, child care in America can simultaneously be so unavailable and so expensive. At the at the same time, we're paying people who work with our youngest children less than we're paying anybody in this economy to do anything. I got people in my state who literally have left uh, the work of teaching preschool to go work at the Dairy Queen because they're getting paid more. 
So we need to make a commitment to quality, we need to make a commitment to the workforce, and we need to make a commitment not just to universal preschool, but I believe to universal education zero to five. In that progressive era I was talking about earlier, we invented high school because we decided that middle school wasn't adequate to the task of educating somebody for the 21st century. We need to do the same thing in our century for kids zero to five. I have other thoughts about that, but I'll park them for a second. On paid family leave, it's one of a number of things that I would do to try to address the issues that we have that are related. One would be to dramatically increase the child tax credit in this country. Actually, I should, uh, let me dwell on that for one second. That bill is called uh, Bennett Brown. Um, <laughs> and and, and it, is, it is my favorite piece of legislation. It, it, as I said, dramatically increases the, the child tax credit and makes it payable on a monthly basis so you don't have to wait to file your taxes at the end of the year. Uh, Columbia University has looked at this bill and they've said that that bill alone, that bill which costs only 3% of what Bernie's Medicare for All costs, reduces childhood poverty in America by 40%. It ends, it ends $2 a day poverty in America for kids. And the proceeds of that, from that bill, could be used by moms and dads to buy childcare for their kids, which is one of the reasons why. They can also use it to buy housing. They can also use it to buy food, but give people some relief. The second bill that I want to mention is called Brown-Bennett. Uh, <laughs> and it is a dramatic increase in the earned income tax credit, which combined with the child tax credit increase would give the middle class in this family a substantial tax cut and lift more people out of poverty. Um, that combined with paid family leave and an increase in the minimum wage, if you could get those four things done, I think you could relieve a lot of pressure from people uh, that are now feeling extraordinary pressure in this economy. And just anticipating an objection to, to, to this Bolshevik stuff that I'm talking about, uh, when you look at the countries, yeah, no, well, I've earned it in a hard way. Uh, when, when you... Uh, when you uh, look at other countries in the world that have things like paid family leave and have a more robust safety net than the one that we have, and by the way, a safety net that's also designed so that people don't just stay on it forever but can actually advance and move back into the workforce, the labor participation rates, the, the percentage of people that are in the workforce actually is higher than it is here. We have both one of the meanest safety nets and one of the lowest uh, workforce participation rates in the industrialized world. And this would be part of changing that. These are, in other words, the, if you care about people working, these are pro-work policies. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Would you please comment on something we heard Claire McCaskill say this morning on MSNBC, that Russia is pouring money into the NRA, who is pouring money into Mitch McConnell's uh, activities in the Senate. I would like to comment on that. <laughs> I, I, had, I was telling Dick last night, I had this great fortune to be on the um, uh, Trevor Noah show, which The Daily Show, and 
and that was fun for me, but it's one of those moments, and I know Dick knows this, and Christopher Celeste knows this, that um, Gabriella knows this, that is one of those great moments when you're a politician, your kids say, you actually do have a good job, <laughs> you know? Ann Bennett even said that last night, and I, and um, he asked me, well, why can't um, McConnell seem to do anything on um, the gun stuff? And I said, well, it, I'm sure it's because he's much too busy trying to protect our elections from the Russians. And he said, I detect a note of sarcasm. And it's true. It was more than a note of sarcasm. How hard can it be to, to put a bill on the floor to protect America from a foreign adversary like Russia? How hard can that be? How hard can that be? How, how hard can that be two weeks after the Intelligence Committee put out a bipartisan report, I'm on the committee, bipartisan report saying that the involvement with the Russians had been serious, that, there, that, that, it had, that it was material, and that it was not just about social media, but about uh, trying to attack our election infrastructure. I mean, in any other time, can you imagine any of the people that I was talking about earlier are, that came before us not addressing this problem? But he's not doing it because he's worried that it'll embarrass President Trump and he doesn't have the guts to put it on the floor for the moment, for the moment. But I believe that we should be using this August recess both on, in terms of the gun issue and in terms of this issue to say that McConnell owes the American people a vote on these matters on the floor of the Senate and that those of us that are in the Senate ought to be held accountable for whether we vote with the Russians or whether we vote with the gun manufacturers or we vote for our democracy and the American people. I, I hope you'll buy my book, but I have another book, this book, which my friend Jeff Rusnak, who's here in Cleveland, has helped me put together. Some guys who work with him. And it's called Dividing America, How Russia Hacks Social Media and Democracy. And I put it together because I didn't think anybody understood the degree to which the Russians were um, involved in our social media. Because I'd run into people. Two weeks ago, I ran into a guy in his 90s in a, in a nursing home in Manchester. And he was very nice, but at the end he said to me, would you just tell Obama, he was an older guy, <laughs> he said, you, you just tell Obama to stop taking that money away from our veterans and giving it to the refugees. I don't know if any of you have heard of that before. That whole idea is from Russian propaganda that was in our social media system. And the Russians, obviously, they don't care whether President Obama is taking money from refugees or from veterans and giving it to refugees. They don't care whether they're supporting Black Lives Matter, which they often are, the Russians, or whether they're supporting the police against Black Lives Matter, or for immigrants or against immigrants. They just are trying to exploit the divisions in our society for their benefit. And we should all ask ourselves as Americans what it means that we could not recognize Russian propaganda we could not distinguish it for a year from our own political vocabulary. It took a year. And even at the end of that year, Facebook was saying, oh no, that's not the Russians. 
Well, it was the Russians. Had they checked their accounting, their books, they would have seen that the Russians paid in rubles. And a lot, of the, a lot of this stuff has to do with guns and the fact that Obama's coming to take away your guns. That was from Russian propaganda. And so, and by the way, I'm very glad you saw Claire McCaskill. She's one of my favorite people in the universe. Very tragic that we lost her last cycle. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been noticing on social media is a very heated discussion on the state of the Democratic primaries. And I'd like to ask you about your experience during this uh, primary season. Uh, there was a post just a few days ago from a very prominent judge, a retired judge, and uh, she argued that there should be less candidates in the race because she felt as if we were spending resources fighting each other, and it's also difficult from a messaging standpoint to get out there. And others disagreed vehemently, saying that the more people that are in the race, the better, because it creates a marketplace of ideas, we can refine messaging, and really give voters options and choose uh, who to vote for. So my question is, what has your experience been in this election cycle, having as many candidates as there is? Is it been a challenge in uh, fundraising? Is it something from a messaging standpoint to get through? Uh, tell us about your experience and sure. uh, what it's been like. Yeah. So it's, it, um, first of all, I think it's important to remember, and I, this is, I'm using your question to riff on something else, because you might as well filibuster if I have the No, <laughs> but. Um, I want to remind everybody here that um, there is a whole terrestrial world of people that are raising their families, that are building their businesses, that are trying to do something useful for their community, and are not spending all their time engaging with politicians on social media. And those people deserve representation, too. And I believe that in Washington today, basically the only folks getting any representation are the people watching the cable television channels at night and the hosts that are on those channels and the people that engage with politicians on social media. I've added that up. That's about 12 million people. Our country's 330 million people. And, if we, and, and I think we need to pay attention to that. And I want to say that in South Carolina, in New Hampshire, and in Iowa, when you're in people's living rooms or in their storefronts, they are not crazy people. They are people that want to make progress on, on behalf of this country. They mostly want to beat Donald Trump, but they also want to figure out how to govern the country again. And I'm really worried that we haven't figured out how to use the social media feeds to, to govern the country. We could have. I mean, there's nothing to say that um, it, these social media couldn't strengthen our democracy, but so far it's been a, largely a corrosive force. And I, anyway, I just wanted to use that as an opportunity to make that point. Second, my experience has been good. I'm, uh, it, wouldn't, it won't surprise you to know I'm in the category of uh, thinking that it's good to have a competition of ideas. It's good to have more candidates. I said earlier, and I mean it, I wouldn't have run if I didn't think that I could win. So for me, this isn't about vanity or you know, a scratch that I had to itch. This is about the future of the country. I believe that you know, we are, if we continue with the politics we've had for the last 10 years, that's largely been about the Freedom Caucus and mobilizing our exercise in self-government, we'll be the first generation to leave less opportunity to our kids and our grandkids, as I said in our speech. That's what I believe, and that's why I'm running, because I think I've got a clearer diagnosis of that problem than the other candidates, and I think I'm in a better position to try to address it than the other candidates. They have different points of view. I also don't think that America knows what the National Democratic Party stands for. 
Um, and, and, I, and I hope that what comes clear from this and that we are able to litigate is, is, is an agenda and a set of ideas that reasserts what the, what the Democratic Party uh, should be for, which I think you know, should be basically the opportunity with a lot of other stuff hanging off it. So I believe this is good that we're having this. And even if I didn't believe it or you didn't believe it, there's nothing we can do about it. So let's have the competition. <laughs> let's have the competition of ideas and let's make it count. You know, and let's, and let's realign what our party is, my party, I'm not assuming anything about anybody else, but what my party, let's, let's realign our priorities with the priorities of the nation and, and get to work. You talked about uh, your family's experience as immigrants. Tell me what reforms you would enact. On immigration? Yeah. Um, thank you. Well, there two things I'd say first of all. Uh, well, no, I'd say one thing first of all, and then I'll say something else. Uh, the, the, uh, whatever I inherited from Dick Celestu is not his public speaking ability. Um, the first is I think it's important for us not to conflate the refugee crisis on the border with our immigration issues. These are distinct issues, and Donald Trump is conflating them for his political purposes to use them to divide the American people. We should not let him happen, let him do it. A rich country, we are one, a powerful country and a humane country, we are all of those things, would be treating the people that are on our border with um, humanely. And we could do it. We could surge resources to that border. We could surge the judges that we need to that border to process people through. We could lead an international conversation to talk about what our mutual obligation is in the hemisphere to resettle these refugees, because there are many places in the hemisphere that actually rather go than here, because there are places where the cost of living is lower and they speak the same language. And, and I think if we had the right kind of president, we'd be doing that right now, instead, instead of cutting the aid from the Northern Triangle countries, which is what Trump has done. And over the long term, that we also have to address that as the leader of this hemisphere, which is to say it matters to us whether there are failed states 1,500 miles from our southern border. And these are small countries wh where the, you know, the commitment to the rule of law is not strong, and corruption and gang violence has meant that people are fleeing for their lives. These people are not fleeing for jobs. They are fleeing for their lives. And I've been down there. I went down there to see why a mom would strap their kid to a drug dealer, pay them a month's salary, knowing the violence that could occur to them, knowing that they could be raped, as many are, and do it anyway. And the reason is because they're scared for their lives. So that's that set of issues. On the immigration issues, um, I had the chance in 2013 uh, to be part of the Gang of Eight in the Senate. We had four Democrats and four Republicans who wrote the Comprehensive Immigration Bill in the Senate, and my proposals as president would be very aligned to that bipartisan work. John McCain led the Republicans um, on that and did an amazing job. I mean, that bill created a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people in America. It had the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been conceived, much less actually passed on the floor of the Senate. And something that Donald Trump seems to have completely forgotten, but I will not let you forget, it included $46 billion of border security in it. $46 billion. Not $6 billion 
for some medieval wall paid for by Mexico that they're not paying for, but 21st century technology that would have allowed us to watch every little inch of that border. It doubled the number of border security agents. It created 350 miles of uh, fencing, which the president calls steel slats. I don't know why, but to distinguish it from his wall, I think. And, um, and so the point is that his accusation that Democrats are for open borders is a lie. Every single Democrat in the Senate on that day when we had the vote voted for that bill. It had internal security. Do you know that 40% of the people that are here that are undocumented are people that came legally and overstayed their visas? And this great country has absolutely no way of tracking who those people are? This bill fixed that problem. Mexico didn't pay for it. The taxpayers that Trump is trying to dun now because he couldn't get Mexico to pay for it, they didn't pay for it. It was paid for by immigration fees. So that wasn't that long ago. It seems a long time ago because it was before Donald Trump rode an escalator down at Trump Tower and declared that immigrants in this country are rapists and murderers and went on to win an election because we were too careless with our democracy. But if we decide not to be careless with our democracy, there is an incredible opportunity for us to fix our immigration system on the back end of this and to do it in a way that I think We'll, st we'll still get bipartisan support. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my, my name is Merle Johnson. I serve on the Ohio Board of Education. Oh, I, thank and you for doing that. I appreciate that. Um, I also taught 40 years in Cleveland schools, and so um, I'm going to give you an education question. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you for saying that the appointment of, of Betsy DeVos was an insult. Uh, to families and everywhere, and I appreciate that. Now, you, I heard you mention something about teacher salary. Right now, the latest I read is that uh, the Denver School District, uh, they rank 46 in the state, in the country, on teacher salaries. Denver teachers just recently went on strike at the beginning of the year because of their low salaries. Um, the students, uh, I think it's $2,500 less than the national average on what students receive. And then I read an interview with the Des Moines uh, Register where you said that we need an education uh, president. So my question is, what would make you an education president? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you for teaching for 40 years in the Cleveland public schools. That's an amazing thing to have done. Um, uh, first of all, on Betsy DeVos, I, in full disclosure, I also said on the floor, that it wasn't her fault that Donald Trump had appointed her uh, <laughs> education secretary. And so maybe she didn't get need the blame. But she has been. She's an abomination. She's just been terrible. I, I've, I've met a lot of people in my life, lots and lots and lots of people in all kinds of walks of life. And it, I don't think I've ever met anybody as ignorant about education as Betsy DeVos. It's amazing. It's really amazing. Um, um, so. Uh, you're right on the subject of the funding of the Denver Public Schools and the funding in Colorado. We fund our schools far, at a far lower rate than lots of other states do. We are about 49th in, in terms of, you know, if you look at our per capita income and what we spend on schools, we're about 49th on that ratio. And the result of that is that um, all over our state, districts are making terrible decisions. All of our rural districts are now on four-day school weeks. 
Brighton, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, is on a four-day school week. Pueblo, Colorado, which is a, a city where the kids are, you know, socioeconomically are like Cleveland or like Denver, um, they're now on a four-day school week. And I went down there actually the first week on the first Friday and met with parents at a boys and girls club. And halfway through, I said, I, you know, this isn't my place, but this all makes me really feel uncomfortable. And the parents came unglued because to save a million and a half dollars, the school district went to a four-day week. And my kids hate it when I say this, but in my view, kids should be in school six days a week. Uh, so going to a four-day week is, 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 in the, is going in the wrong direction. In Denver, I think we've tried to actually keep pace. I mean, when I became the superintendent there, we were sixth in the metro area in teacher pay. And within a year or two, we were number one in, in teacher pay in the metro area. Um, you're right, there was just a strike in Denver because today in Denver, because of the teacher salaries that people have, you can't, afford, you can't afford to live on a teacher's salary, like you can't in many other places across this country. One of the things I loved about working in the Denver Public Schools was that it was very common for teachers to live in the city and county of Denver, which I think is really important. Today, they can't afford to live there. They can't rent apartments there. They can't have housing, housing there. And so it was one of the things that led them to strike. And I'm certainly very sympathetic to their uh, concern and uh, the district and the, and, the, um, and the union worked out a negotiation. But it's still not going to pay. Te teachers still won't be able to live there. And the basic problem all across this country, I think, when it comes to teacher pay, is that we, we have a system that is obsolete. And it is a system that, that was created when we had a labor market that discriminated against women and said, you have two professional choices. One is being a teacher, and one is being a nurse. That's the way it used to be. And we would say, since you, you don't want to be a nurse, you, you'll come be a teacher. You're going to come here to the Cleveland Public Schools or the Denver Public Schools, and you're going to teach Julius Caesar every year for 30 years of your life. And we're going to pay you a salary that is far below what anybody else in your college class would get because we're discriminating against you, because you're a woman. And if you stay with us for 30 years, which you would because nobody was going to offer you another job, we'd give you a pension that you could retire on. And since your spouse was going to die, that sounded pretty good to you. It's been 50 years since we've had that level of discrimination in our, in our system, and yet we haven't changed the way we pay teachers. So I think we have to dramatically increase teacher pay in America. We have to benchmark teachers against to other, other professions like lawyers and like doctors. We're losing 50% of the people from the profession in the first five years. And it's not all teacher pay. Part of it's that we've done a lousy job training principals to lead buildings. Part of it's that um, the job is just really, really hard. Part of it is that very few people do anything for 30 years any, anymore. But we would be a lot better off trying to manage the career so that we could support people 10 years and 15 years who are willing to teach that long. We're going to have a hard time doing that if we don't transform the way we pay teachers. And it's going to be very difficult to do it because uh, 
the federal government and the state government and the local governments all have different responsibilities for the streams of revenue and for, and for other regulatory interests. As president, I think that I actually it would be in a very good position to lead this conversation because I have been a school superintendent. I have spent more times in schools and classrooms than I think probably any other president ever has, certainly as, as a professional. And uh, I care about this issue more than any other issue that we're contending with. Senator Bennett, over here. <laughs> uh, I'm one of the millions of people in America who live with HIV. Uh, I'm a very fortunate person who has uh, benefits, insurance. Uh, I have great health care, a supportive family, and a community. Uh, unfortunately, many people who live with HIV in this country don't have those things. Uh, so I want to ask you, as president, will you take an aggressive approach, uh, and, and not the lip service that we're getting from this administration, but a truly aggressive approach at combating the HIV epidemic in this country, especially as it relates to issues like housing and access to health care? Yes. Yes, I will. I promise. Uh, I think it's one um, very important example of why it is such a moral outrage and, and an economic outrage, but a moral outrage that we're really the only country in the industrialized world that doesn't have universal health care and doesn't cover people adequately for uh, medications that they might need or other sorts of health care. So I think the good news is every single Democrat in this field believes what I just said, and I think would make the same commitment to you. I believe that my approach to this work is better than the others in the field. It's a public option that gives everybody in America the chance to make the choice for their family or for their loved ones, um, uh, whether they want to stay on the private insurance they have or whether they'd rather have a public option. And, and we have to make sure as we're doing that, that we, we're guaranteeing access to the medicine and healthcare that people need. So thank you for the question. I'm not actually calling on people, so you need to, yes. I wasn't trying to escape the burden either, I just. Senator Bennett, I was struck by the role of interruptions and strident, hostile questions in the conduct of the democratic debates. I would ask you if you feel that the way the questions are being framed and attention is being uh, allocated uh, in the debates is fair or if you have some problem with it. Thank you. I think that it's, it, that it, I, I, I have no complaint about it because it's the, for the moment, it's the system that we have, I suppose, or part of the system that we have. I think we're relying on these debates much too heavily to make decisions that people in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, to say nothing of the rest of the country, are not yet making. We are, this is so early in the uh, election, the idea that the DNC would be deciding to carve people off of this, uh, uh, off of this next debate stage because of their objective criteria, and 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 which would continue to um, overemphasize uh, a, a form of communication that is completely useless to the American people in terms of picking their next president. I think. It's not useless, I suppose. That's too strong a word. But because people do want to know that whoever it is we nominate can take on Donald Trump. And that is an important thing to know. But the particular format that we're working on, which is one-minute answers to um, those sorts of conflict-creating questions, 
That, you couldn't pick uh, an environment that President Trump would thrive in more than that one. Um, and we need to remember that, I think, as we go through this process. I am spending a lot of time in these early states with voters because I think that's also very important too, and I, in part because I learn from them, but, but also because they're the ones that are ultimately going to make the decisions. Too much emphasis on the debates, too much emphasis on social media, I think, uh, and not enough emphasis on what are the priorities of the American people. And I hope that I can make a dent in that as a candidate in changing that. Thanks. You did it. Thank you. Thank you so I hope it was okay. So with responses greater than 60 seconds, we've been listening to a forum with Michael Bennett, U.S. Senator of Colorado and Democratic candidate for the, president, for the presidency. He's also the author of The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. Our Road to 2020 forum is part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. Our community, our community partner uh, for today's forum is the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Christopher Celeste, the Ohio Debate Commission, our strategy group, and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, as well as students from Hathaway Brown. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from KeyBank and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. The sale of Senator Bennett's, Bennett's book, The Land of Flickering Lights, is provided by a cultural exchange, and that brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, Senator Thank Bennett. You, Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.